Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us this morning. How many uh, this morning thank God for air conditioning? Yeah, praise God. How many thank God for deodorant? Especially for the person sitting next to you, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good to have you with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. We've got a long text here. This is our continuing teaching series, How It Changes Everything. And this weekend's uh, message title is Paradox. You could sum up the whole book of uh, Acts by basically saying, actually, it's in one, one verse, key verse, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Literally, the word witness is martyr. And... Uh, What he's saying there and what we have seen thus far, the book of Acts is about the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the hearts and lives of the people of God, making an impact in this world for God. God so revolutionizes our lives as we walk in vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. He changes our lives and we become change agents in this world. That's kind of a summary statement of the book of Acts. This morning as we talk about paradox, take a look at your notes. I gave you a definition for paradox. Paradox is a statement or proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. Let me give you some examples. Take a look on the big screen behind me. Here's some examples. Let me walk through them. You're going to have to think a little bit. Here's one example of a paradox. Nobody goes to that restaurant. It's too crowded. You have to think about it a little bit. Uh, Nobody goes to that restaurant, but why is it so crowded that it's too crowded? Maybe your friends don't go, but obviously there's a lot of people that go, but it's a bit of a paradox. Here's the next one. Don't go near the water until you've learned to swim. How are you going to learn to swim if you don't go near the water? Okay. A little bit of a paradox. Here's the next one. The man who wrote such a stupid sentence cannot write at all. And this guy can't spell. Okay. Here's the next one. If you get this message, call me. If you don't, then don't worry about it. That makes absolutely no sense because if they don't get it, of course they're not going to worry about it. And uh, here's, a, here's another one. If a person says about himself that he always lies, is that the truth or a lie? Now, some of you are looking at me with these eyes that are like, what the heck did he just say with any of those? Okay, I understand. Those are paradoxes. Those are kind of interesting statements. There's a reality within those statements, but it seems like a contradiction in some way. The Bible uh, talks a lot about the paradoxes in the Christian life. Here's three, and you can find out where the addresses are on the growing notes this week as you work through the growing notes. But here's three. You might recognize these. To be happy, you must be sad. You familiar with that, with that one or where that might be? Here's the next one. To be great, you must be small. And to find your life, you must lose it. It's a paradox. Interesting. here's Here's the paradox for this morning's study. This is the thesis statement for our study. Uh, The verses we'll be looking at in just a moment, verses 12 through 42, chapter 5. But here's, here's the kind of the paradoxical statement that I'm using. The normal Christian life reaches and repels. So if you're living the normal Christian life, you're going to both reach, but you'll also repel people. And also you'll receive blessings and beatings while treasuring Jesus above all things, displaying his infinite worth and value. That's the normal Christian life. Now, when my wife and I, I think that she probably understood, you know, the drastic change it would bring to our life when we have a child and then we have two and then we have three. I had no idea. But when we had that first child, I mean, it was like a 180 in our lives. It just swung us completely around. I mean, I didn't realize these kids need care 24-7 until they reach about 20. And uh, actually, it, it, you can kind of turn them on their own before that, but not too much sooner than that. But, uh, and then we had this, the second child, and it was like we were doing 360s. And then we added a third child in there. I mean... Uh, we were, she, not me, she was popping them out pretty quickly until we realized what was causing that. And then, uh, and then we put an end to that. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound very nice, does it? <laughs> but it was kind of interesting because those three, and it was, there was one time, at one time we had three in diapers. And that's hard when the kid's 16 years old and he's, 
You still, I'm kidding. They were actually, our oldest at the time was, uh, he was still in diapers. I think he was just, uh, he, we put diapers on him at night, and he was still kind of in that potty training time. But, but all three of them were kind of in diapers at that time. And I'll never forget this. We were headed to, to church Sunday morning, extremely hot outside. took us all morning just to get him ready. And it took us about 45 minutes just to get him in the car. And uh, we finally get him in the car, and both of us are sitting in the front seat, and we're just sweating, drenched with sweat, and we're going, oh, my goodness, so much work. And I looked over at her and I go, man, I'll be glad when things get back to normal. She looks at me like, you idiot, this is normal. <laughs> this is normal. And it was. It was normal for, from that point on, and, and it was unbelievable, the, the difficulty of, of that. And at some, you know, certain points, they, they began to take care of themselves a little bit more, and, and it, all of it was a lot of fun as we went through that process. But here's the Christian life. This is the normal Christian life. That if you're living out the Christian life, this is normal. That you will reach some and you will repel others. Some people will just despise you just because you call yourself a Christian. That's normal. Not only that, there will be blessing, unbelievable blessing, but also you'll take some unbelievable beatings because you follow Jesus. That's normal Christianity. That's normal. But you'll do that if you really understand Christ and all of who He is and what He's done for you. You will do all of that by through treasuring Jesus above all things, displaying His infinite worth and value. No matter what goes down in your life, if you understand the Christian life, you can treasure Him above all things. You will treasure Him above all things, displaying His infinite worth and value, even, even while you're in taking beatings, and even while you're being repelled and rejected by those around you. Unbelievable. How do we, how do we get there? Well, we're going to go there in our study this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll read our text. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. Once again, go before the throne of grace. Ask for God's help as we study His Word. God, we, we are desperate for You. We need You. Father in heaven, we love You. We love You because You first loved us, even... Even while we were your enemies, your unconditional, captivating love has reached out to us, rescued us, redeemed us, and is restoring us to wholeness. And so this morning, through the study of your word, teach us how to treasure you above all things, the good, the bad, even the ugly things of our lives, so that our lives will be a display case of your infinite worth and value. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Take a look at this text. It's a lengthy text, quite a lengthy text here, and so let me walk through it. This is after the Ananias and Sapphira uh, scenario here at the beginning of uh, 5. We talked about that last week at the, the first 11 verses the whole idea of hypocrisy, and then in verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now here's where we get a little bit of the paradox. None of the rest dared join them, but the people led, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So you got this idea that people are intimidated by them, that they're fearful and maybe even repelled, you know, repelled by them or reject them, but at the same time there's a lot of people being attracted to them. So it says, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Why is that? That his shadow would fall on them and they would be healed. Pretty miraculous. Unbelievable blessing of God going on right here. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. We got a lot of blessing going on, but then the scene changes where the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But but when we opened, when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Now, what you're going to notice here is because of their prominence, power, prestige, they didn't give a rip about the message or the miracles that were happening happening as a result of the apostles in the early church. They were more concerned about their position because it says there, as we read in verse 17, they were filled with jealousy. Jealousy was blinding them from the truth. And so they're concerned, what is going to happen? And someone came. I mean, I would be thinking, well, how did they get out? What was going on? There's, there's something real here that's happening. But that wasn't what they were concerned about. They were more concerned about their own. They were very political. They were more concerned about their own power. And so it's quite interesting here. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people because they're seeing that the people are beginning to to surround them. And they're becoming very popular. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them saying, hey, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 4. He's already been brought before this court, and this is what he said. He says, who are we going to believe? Who are we going to follow? You or God? Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What are they saying there? They're saying, we saw him. We saw him crucified, and we saw he was resurrected. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. Pretty powerful statement that he's making here. And, uh, and so God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. It's pretty violent. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Stop there just for a minute. Look up here. You've got to understand this. What he's saying here is half truth. It's not 100% truth, and I need to say that. Because oftentimes people refer to that thinking, oh, yeah, that's true. Well, it's not 100% true. Because things that are not of God succeed in our day and time. There are many cults and religions that are very successful that are not of God, and they succeed. But it is true that it is, if it is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it, as we see this book that we hold dearly in Christianity. The Bible says that the, the grass withers, flowers fade, but my word will last forever. People have tried to, to get rid of this book, and they haven't been able to do it. 
And, and they've tried to get rid of the people of this book, that is, Christians who hold this book dearly. And so, that, so it's kind of half true, so you need to understand that. There are successful ministries. Just because a, a ministry is successful doesn't make it of God, okay? You, just, you need to be discerning and understand that. But here's the most profound part of this. Here's the, the pinnacle. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. These guys were flogged. Have you ever seen the Passion of the Christ? You get a little bit of a glimpse of what that looks like. Now, here's what's even more amazing than that. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council. What? What does that word say it with me? Rejoicing. That's not skippity doo day kind of rejoicing, like, come on, lift up your head, got to be happy, even though it's pretty sad out there. No, it's not that. This is a different kind of supernatural rejoicing. It's an overflowing, it's a buoyancy in, in their lives that, that comes from some sort of a supernatural source. There's something happening in these guys' lives. And so... And so, and they left the presence of the council rejoicing, now listen to this, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. Did they stop preaching? Well, look at the next verse. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Man, that's awesome. This is unbelievable stuff. So, here's the question. How do we get to verses 41 and 42? How do we get to that place that no matter what goes down in our life, that we're able to treasure Jesus above all things, displaying His infinite worth and value? Because that's what we see happening here. Now, I know I'm finally up to the 21st century. I finally got on Facebook, and I'm Twittering right now. Not right now, but, uh, but those of you that followed me on Twitter this last week, I basically fed you my notes so I just gave you what, I, what I'm going to talk about. So you're going to, this is just reiteration of what I've already been sharing with you throughout the week. So just to drive that deeper into your, into your heart. And so this is how do we get to verses 41 and 42. Things we need to know and remember. Here's number one. Disappointment with God comes from unrealistic expectations of God. Disappointment with God comes from unrealistic expectations of God. Would you agree with me that our expectations play a big role in our life and how we manage life and navigate life and the things that happen to us? If I were to take you into a room and before I took you into this room, I said, this is a honeymoon suite. You walked into the room. You may say, ah, and I asked you, what do you think? And you said, ah, it's not quite what I thought, maybe a little disappointed. But if I took you into that very same room and said, this is a jail cell, you may say, wow, this is really nice. Just the difference in perspective. See, if we have these expectations of God that are unrealistic and life experiences come in below that, what is that gap called between expectations and life experiences? It's called disappointment. It's called disillusionment. And so if we have unrealistic expectations of God, we are going to experience a great deal of disappointment. Everybody look up here. Nowhere in this book, nowhere ever did he ever promise us a painless or problem-free life. He didn't. Did you know that? And if you're expecting that from him, you've got unrealistic expectations. Nowhere in this book. But this is what he promised us. Now listen to me. He never promised us a painless or problem-free life, but this is what he promised us. He promised us his peace that would go beyond all understanding. He promised his, his power in our lives, his enabling presence in our life. And most importantly, he promised us his presence, that he would never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us in the midst of pain and problems. Um, I've got a number of verses here. You'll notice on the notes, I always give you a number of cross-references. Uh, comment, uh, scripture... Best commentary for Scripture is Scripture. John 16, 33, what did Jesus say before he departed his disciples? He said, in this world you will have trouble. Guaranteed. In this world you will have trouble. Fortunately, he didn't stop there. But he said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
In other words, this is what he's saying. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Yeah, you're going to have trouble, but nothing can overcome, nothing can defeat, nothing can conquer God's peace, power, and presence in your life. Romans 8, 36 through 37. Paul has an interesting way of kind of describing uh, the scenario of life. And this is what he says. We are like, and he's quoting Old Testament, but he says, we are like sheep being led to the slaughter. Isn't that interesting? Interesting picture about life. Do you have to feel like that? Sheep being led to the slaughter. But he says, in that context, he says the next verse, we are more than conquerors. So you have the reality of of pain and difficulty, but with that reality, there is this ability to conquer. James 1, 2, uh, Jesus' half-brother, he said, Count it all joy when, not, not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing this, the trying of your faith produces patience, Perseverance, so let perseverance have its perfect work in you so that you might be complete and perfect, not lacking in anything. So he says it's a reality. You're going to face difficulties, but those difficulties can work in your life. First Peter four twelve through 13 Peter puts it this way, Don't be surprised at the fiery trials that have come upon you as if some strange thing was happening to you. I mean, isn't that the first thing that we think? What is, what's going on? Why is this happening to me? What's ha- God, where are you? God, do you, do, you, do you not love me? But he's saying, hey, don't consider it some kind of strange thing that's happening to you. But he goes on, rejoice, there's that word again, rejoice insofar as you are sharing in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Kind of curious of this show of hands. How many, how many went into marriage not knowing how difficult it would be? Show of hands. Woo! There's a lot of us. Isn't that crazy? And my job is always to try to uh, let people know how difficult it's going to be before they get into marriage. And uh, they don't listen to you. They don't. Because they're too starry-eyed. But we're in love. Yeah, but that love is going to turn into hate one of these days. I mean, you try to explain it to them, but they're just like, you know, it's just they're, they're love struck and... And it's crazy. Here's a, another part of the survey. How many, show of hands, how many went into marriage knowing how difficult it would be? Show of hands. And you did it anyway? You, you're a masochist. No, you did it. You did it because hopefully you knew that the, that the difficulties of it or the, the benefits would outweigh the difficulty of it. Is that kind of how you guys headed into it for the most part? And so oftentimes, you know, when I sit down with couples to try to prepare them for marriage, you know, I want to I say to them, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. I mean, don't be surprised when you have thoughts of, not divorce, it's not an option, but murder. <laughs> don't be surprised when you have thoughts of murder. Okay, let's be honest. How many have ever been there before? Show of hands. Some of you, it's okay. You could. There's a guy back here pointing to his wife. Yeah, she's, she's wanting to kill me. I, I know, I can see your neck where those... Middle of the night. I woke up a couple times with the pillow over my face. Could hardly breathe. I was trying to figure out what is going on in here. My wife was pretending she was asleep. But, uh, but here's the deal. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Rejoice insofar as you are sharing in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What is he talking about there? You share in Christ's sufferings? This is it. This is, this is what happens. And when you go through difficulty, you share in Christ's sufferings when in your suffering you share Christ. You show Jesus. You point to him. And there's an amazing glory of God. The word glory means weight, significance, importance. That while you go through difficulties, that you can be a display case of his glory. And they'll look at you and go, wow, what in the world is going on? And it's supernatural. I can't explain it. I've experienced it. I've seen other people experience it. But just as you saw in verse 41, these guys are rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. I mean, that's a paradox. And yet we know that that's, that's, there's something working in their lives. 
Now, here's, here's what happens oftentimes in our life. See if you can track with me on this next thought. Sometimes disappointment with God is our anger at the real God because he won't give us our false God. I want you to think about that for a minute. In other words, we are ticked off at him. In fact, we're going to defect from the faith in direct proportion to something that he did not give to us or he didn't jump through the hoops that we thought he should jump through enough. We want that more than we want him. And that's, that's that false God that we're clinging to. So sometimes disappointment with God is our anger at the real God because he won't give us our false God. Everybody look up here once again. Listen. He is infinitely better. He is infinitely better than anything that we may have to give up or whatever happens in our lives. He's infinitely better than anything. Anything, any, any false God that we cling to. He's infinitely better than anything that we may lose or have to give up in following Him. He is infinitely better. He is infinitely better. He is infinitely better. The value that He has placed upon us, how much He loves us. There is no false idol that can even come close to his love. He's infinitely better. So, expectations play a big role. Disappointment with God comes from unrealistic expectations. Expect to reach and repel, bless and take beatings. Number two, life is not a playground but a battleground. Life is not a playground but a battleground. Turn to the person next to you real quick, discuss this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, give us three of our enemies. See if you know what the three enemies are. If you're a Christian, you need to know what these three enemies are because they're pounding you each and every day. Real quick, do that with those around you, then I'll ask you if you know. Okay, three enemies, yell them out to me. Anybody know? Self, someone said self. Self, so we have this sinful nature. We have this sinful nature. So it constantly, you know... Tries to draw us away, drag us away, work against, at enmity against God. What's the, what's the second one? Satan? Okay, yeah, we have an advers- adversary. Satan, so we got self, Satan, and if you want to alliterate it with all S's. Society, got it. So this, the, the, the values of our world. By the way, you are dogged. You are pummeled day in and day out with the values of our society. And then I try to redirect you for, for an hour or so on Sunday mornings. But if this is all you're getting, you're getting hammered. Not only that, you have, a, you have an adversary. You have a target on you. He is gunning for you. He's after you. And then you have your own sinful self-nature that works against you. He talks about that in that uh, chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So the Christian life is, is not an invitation on a cruise line, but a battleship, really. And this came home to me a number of years ago. When I first got on the fire department, I was a booter, probationary firefighter. I was at Station 5, 16th Street in Thomas. We got one of our very first calls that we went on. It was attempted suicide. We get there on the call. Captain walks in. He says, hey, come here, booter. Let's go in there. I want you to see this call. It was the worst, absolutely worst thing I had ever seen. And it still stays with me. And it's in my head and it just it really rocked my world at that time and uh, I walked in and this young man 21 year old had taken a double barrel shotgun in his studio apartment sat on his bed propped the, the butt of the gun in between his feet put the two barrels up to his face and pulled both triggers blew his face in a billion pieces walked in the room he could hardly walk because there's just blood guts and bone fragments all over in that room I only share those details with you because I want you to see the seriousness of that and immediately as I begin to reflect on that I, the verse that came to mind the thief comes to kill steal and destroy this boy took his life because he was jilted from a relationship on again off again relationship the gal left him and he had put his whole life into her and therefore he took his life because his life was over because she was gone and I thought man I wonder if there was Christians co-workers that were Christians people that lived in this apartment complex that were Christians that were reaching out to him maybe praying for him I was wondering if there was a church in the area that had been reaching out to him the thief comes to kill steal and destroy but I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest is what that verse says. And that, 
that hit me so strong and so hard and stays with me, and it's what drives me even to what we do here today. And I don't minimize in the least bit what the fire department, what our police officers, our military, they deal with life and death. They deal with life and death issues, no doubt about it. But it's in a, in a temporal sense. It's life and death here and now. What we deal with, what we deal with here at Desert Breeze is for all eternity. Because the question I had to ask myself, where did, where did this guy go? Where is he going to spend eternity? He's not coming back. And yeah, maybe someone could have prevented it and prolonged his life. But at some point, he's going to leave this life and go into eternity. Where will he go? And, and you have an adversary that if he can't get you to go to hell, he will fling as much hell into your life that he can to disrupt your life, to get you off course. Though you may be headed for heaven He will distract you and disturb you and to try to make your life not to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in every way. And so that that shook me. It stirred me. And the, the spiritual battle that we are in has real casualties. The stakes are eternal with souls, people's lives hanging in the balance. Ephesians 6.12, it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The struggles that we have is not what it seems like. There's something much deeper in the spiritual realm. It also says that he is a roaring lion prowling to devour us. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. It also tells us in 2 Corinthians 2, 11, don't be outwitted. And we know that based on 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that he blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why you can share Christ with your friends and they're like, what? Good for you. They are blinded, the Bible says, and you need to pray that God will lift those blinders off of their eyes. But what does he do to us, believers? 2 Corinthians 11.3, he leads astray believers' hearts. He's trying to lead your, your heart astray from your sincere and pure devotion to, to Christ. So your best defense is a good offense. Keep your heart ravished by the Redeemer. Keep your heart soft. Keep your heart fervent for the Lord Jesus Christ, to know him, to want to make him known through your life. That's how you keep him off, away from your life, is focusing on Jesus, making him the, keeping him at the center of your life. It's through humility. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So it's keeping your heart soft and humble before God. Recognize your desperate need for him and continue to run to him each and every day. And, uh, and that, that, that means this. It means this. It means take God seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously. When you take yourself seriously, it's called pride. But you need to learn to laugh at yourself. It's okay to laugh from time to time at yourself. Before I take you to the next point, let me share with you a quick story. Father's Day, last Sunday, had the family around. I have uh, two sons married, uh, four grandsons, my dad, mom, my daughter was in town, uh, my mother-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law. So there was just a bunch of us there. And so I read Psalm 103. Remember I told you to read that one? It's a great one on the Father's heart. And then I'm praying, and at the end of the prayer, my little four-year-old grandson, uh, Braden, um, how can I say this in a nice way? He passed gas. He broke wind, and it was loud. It just kind of echoed through the room as I'm praying. And, uh, and of course, uh, we cracked up laughing. It was at the end of the prayer, and then there wasn't much more we could do after that but say, in Jesus' name, amen. And then... And then we laughed, and my first thought was, he is just like his grandma Nancy. And uh, no, I didn't. I didn't think that. He's more. How many would say he's probably more like his grandpa Ray? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was thinking he's just like all of us. He's just like all of us, and God still loves us. And we laughed about it. Now, if he continues to do that when he's 16 years old, we're gonna have to talk to him about that. Okay. We got some serious problems here. You're being disrespectful, dude. Smack, okay? But uh, he didn't know any better. He's just a kid. He's a four-year-old. In fact, what was funny about it is that he he goes like this. Right after he did it, he goes, "It was Brayden." <laughs> he not only did it, but then he was proud of it. And I think that's what made us laugh. He's like, "Wow, dude." He's a four-year-old. If you're religious, that would upset you. Most of my family is not religious. We tend to be a little irreligious, but that's another story. But, but we just laughed about it because we don't take ourselves very seriously. God understands. God knows. 
God loves us. Don't take yourself so seriously because that's called pride. Take him seriously. Take him real seriously. And that's what I love about Desiree because we laugh at ourselves. Yeah, we make messes. We do things that we shouldn't do. We laugh, but, but man, our life is about him. It's about pointing to Jesus. It's about knowing him and making him known through our lives, even through our mistakes, even through our problems. We can do that. Here's the next point. So, disappointment with God comes from unrealistic expectations of God. Life is not a playground, but a battleground. God's power shows up according to God's providence. God's power shows up according to God's providence. It's interesting in our text, uh, Acts 5, that was our text, verse 15. Did you notice Peter goes from his shadow healing people to verse 40, being flogged, being beaten, but either way, he makes God look gorgeous. I mean, he looks, it makes God look attractive. We, I'm looking at this going, how do I get to verses 41 and 42? I want that in my life. I want that in my life. Um, how many have ever read Hebrews 11? How many know what Hebrews 11 is all about? Hebrews 11, you theologians out there. Hebrews 11 is what? Yell it out to me. Faith. Yeah, it's a faith chapter. It's a great, great chapter on faith. And most times people don't read it far enough, but as you work through the faith chapter, about verses 33 and 38, it goes like this. Some were mighty in war, conquered kingdoms, stopped lions' mouths. Ooh, I like that. And then it does this kind of 180, and it says, And others were tortured, mocked, and flogged. But what we see in this, the whole, the whole story of chapter 11 but all showing by faith that Jesus is more than enough. No matter what you're going through, He is more than enough. <laughs> he is more than enough. He is more than enough. It's interesting, uh, we'll eventually get there, Acts 28, as we work through the book of Acts. Acts 28, verses 1 through 10 Paul heals everybody. And then we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, Paul can't even heal himself. He's got this thorn in the flesh and he's struggling. Here's what we can learn from this is that the God of the Bible is not like a genie in a bottle. He's not a technique to be mastered, but an amazing friendship, an amazing friendship to be nurtured. God does what he wants, when he wants, for, for your good, for our good and his his glory. His power is not manipulated by our wish and whim. We can trust God. We can trust that God has a purpose for whatever he permits. And, and this is what he does. This is what I've seen him in my life. Listen to me. Everybody look up here. Sometimes, sometimes he calms the storms. And sometimes he calms his child in the storm Either way, God is working for our good in His glory. And this is how you know that you're beginning to trust His providence, is that you can ask boldly, you ask boldly, whatever you're going through, you ask boldly that God would take it away or work, you know, whatever. But, you, but at the same time, you surrender completely to whatever He permits, showing that you trust His loving, wise control of your life. God's power shows up according to God's providence. Next point. Lots of things don't make sense yet. Lots of things don't make sense yet. We'll eventually get to this text also, Acts 12, 1 through 3. Peter and James get arrested. James is beheaded. He gets his head cut off, and Peter is released. That doesn't make sense yet. Show of hands here, how many have experienced something that made no sense until later? Show of hands. How many have experienced something that made no sense and later still made no sense? Yeah. Yeah. Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says the secret things belong to God. That there are things that are secrets that... He knows if he, he couldn't, even if he explained it to you, you probably wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't grasp it. But those belong to God. He has secret things about our lives. He's working in our lives. There's just so much that they don't make sense yet based on what the Bible says. That's why it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding. 
You know, typically we're always trying to make sense of it. If I could just make sense of this, then I could feel better. The Bible says don't do that. You, you, you not, might, might not be able to ever make sense of it. So don't lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. The word acknowledge literally means cultivate intimacy with, with Him. Get to know Him. You don't need to have an answer if you, if you know the one who has all of the answers. If you know Him, if you trust Him, if you look to Him, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, love chapter, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. The mirrors that they had in those days were polished brass. So you could you couldn't make out the details, but you kind of make out the out, outline. And so, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, oh, these are sweet words. These are wonderful words. But then, but then, but then face to face. Face to face with our Savior. Face to face with the one who would rather die than to live for all eternity without you. That's an amazing thought. You will come face to face with Jesus one way or the other. He'll either be your Savior or he'll either be your judge. The Bible says, here, we will come face to face. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. He knows the number of hairs on our head. That's awesome. I don't even know that, and I don't have very many. You know, it's just like, wow. For now, we see dimly, but then face to face. I believe the first words that are going to come out of our mouth is this. We come face to face with our Savior. Ah, now I see. Oh, Jesus, you are so wonderful. That is amazing. That's what he's saying right here. But then face to face. Lots of things don't make sense yet. Number five, we always get the grace we need when we need it. We always get the grace... We always get the grace we need when we need it. Not a moment before. You will not get the grace for the flogging until the whip is taken out. I, and I've looked at things sometimes, and I've, I've often looked at how, what people went through. And I thought, man, I don't know how I could, I don't know if I could ever go through that. And I'm, I'm just amazed at how sometimes I see God's grace working in people's lives. And I go, I don't know that I have the grace, and yet... I know that God's grace is sufficient whatever I'm going through and typically it's not going to be available to me until I'm actually going through that. And you kind of get a hint of that in Acts 5.41. I mean, these guys are rejoicing. They get the grace they need for the beating and they're able to rejoice. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So if you think that maybe what you're going through is unique, one of a kind. It's an original. The Bible says, no, nah, there's plenty of others that have gone through that. It's not, it's not uncommon what you're going through. But it says in that, by the way, that's part of the work of the enemy to try to isolate you away from others. Like nobody really understands what you're going through. Well, maybe nobody does, but God does. Jesus understands. And I'll guarantee you that if you look enough, you'll see that there are others that have gone through and are going through what you're going through. But no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But this is what it says. God is faithful. How's that? Yeah, he's faithful. And he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So life's difficult. There is no, no doubt about it. Life is extremely difficult. But you never have to face anything alone because His presence is a promise guaranteed through the cross. This is not just theoretical wishful thinking. God is with you. It's not bumper sticker theology. This is reality. There is something that happens when we pray for people that supernaturally, I don't understand it, but I've seen it. I've experienced it. He is a... As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, 3, that he is a father of compassion, a God of all comfort. I've seen God do his work in the midst of difficulties and pain and suffering. 
And uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. He is a Father, compassionate God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. We always get the grace we need when we need it, not a moment before, though your ability to access it can be developed. Your ability to access that grace that is available to you can be developed, as it says in, it says in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I, I kind of liken it to, how many would say that it's a good thing that when you save up a little bit of money, because if your car breaks down or you need new tires or something happens around your home you need to fix, you got money to draw upon. So a savings account is a good thing. Would you guys agree with that? There is a spiritual kind of a savings account that when you come to church regularly, when you read your Bible, when you pray, when you get together with other Christians, there is this spiritual equity that you're kind of storing up so that when things happen, you've got something to draw upon. I believe that you have an ability to access that grace that God provides for us. And uh, He loves us. We always get the grace we need when we need it. Last point. Treasuring Jesus above all things displays his worth and value. That's what these guys are doing in verses 41 and 42. Treasuring Jesus above all things, triumph or tragedy, displays his worth and value. Let me read verses 41 and 42 because that's where we were getting once again. So after this beating... Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I mean, their behavior is heroic. Why? I think the clue is found in, back in verse 31. If you still have your Bibles up in verse 31... Because Peter's up talking and he says, God exalted him, speaking to Jesus. And he uses an interesting word, as leader and savior. The Greek for the word leader is hero or champion. And it was used in, that, in Greek mythology and that Greek culture for Hercules. And so he's saying, Jesus is our hero, he's our champion. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 12 too. Where it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the hero champion, the author, finisher, hero champion, and finisher of your faith. They were heroic in direct proportion to their faith in the ultimate hero, their hero, Jesus. So their heroic behavior came out of their being, being able to see what he had done, what he had done for them. I'm going to show you a two-minute clip. It's from Lord of the Rings. It's that scene where Gandalf stays back and fights the fiery dragon, which is a, it's a great picture of our sin and Satan who's out after us. And he stays back and fights him so the rest can, can run away in freedom. And uh, it's a beautiful picture. You'll notice that the, the fiery dragon gets its whip, this whip around his ankle. And so it's kind of a depiction, a little bit of Jesus, what Jesus did for us. And when we think of heroism, that's really what a hero is. A hero stays back and fights the enemy so, so that we can escape. Um, most, uh, most of you probably don't know this, but C.S. Lewis was uh, converted on this premise through J.R. Tolkien based on this. Listen to this. Our world is filled with stories of good against evil, some king, ruler, hero coming back to slay the dragon and save the world. Jesus Christ is the underlying reality under which all of these other stories point. That's what J.R. Tolkien told to C.S. Lewis. Do you see why you're so intrigued by these stories, so drawn to these stories? When we look at all the movies, why do we go to the movies? It's because some hero comes in and rescues, rescues the victims and wipes out the villain. And uh, he, he went on to say, that's Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. He is the beautiful prince, ruler, and king your heart longs for. When you watch those movies, read those books, and hear those stories. I mean, even in the movie uh, Grand Torino, you had that bit of a... If you watch it, you need to watch probably the edited version because there's a lot of profanity. It's a harsh movie. 
more from the TV version, but it was interesting. Even in these different movies about people giving their life, and we're so drawn to that. And that's, what, that's what's happening in their lives. Treasuring Jesus above all things, triumph of tragedy displays his worth and value. Um, they, they were heroic in direct proportion to their faith in the ultimate hero, their hero Jesus. Listen, they, were, they saw they saw. Jesus, they saw what he had done for them, and they were seized to the core of their being. And it created within them this ability to be heroic in the midst of really difficult things that were happening to them in their life. And they understood that he is more to be desired than all we may gain or to lose. I left you with a couple of quotes here. Samuel Rutherford, he put it this way, when I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, those who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Piper says, Christian hedonists will do anything to have the king's wine and the rare pearls, even go to the cellars of suffering and dive in the sea of affliction. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. We're going to give you opportunity this morning. There'll be a couple places up here where we will anoint you with oil and pray for you, no matter what you're going through. Physical, emotional, spiritual, we would love to pray with you. I'm going to pray, and we're going to conclude. I'm going to leave you seated so that you can sit in here for a few moments as you listen to the music and reflect on what we've talked about and how you can begin to apply these truths to your life. As you feel that you are ready, you can exit quietly if you would, please. But let me pray, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. God, thank you so much. Thank you for being here today, speaking to our hearts. And God... Your son, our savior, he's our hero. And so that may that draw out of us a heroic behavior that no matter what we're going through, whether we reach or repel, whether we have blessing or beatings, that we would treasure Jesus above all things, displaying his infinite worth and value. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.